Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning, and it is another day in paradise. I'm in North Michigan, hanging, well, not North Michigan, I guess, I, somewhere in the Midwest. I, I'm still confused on where I live because I've been here for about a year and a half. It's snowy outside, but it's good because I'm about to get outside this weekend and go backpacking. Cannot wait. But before I do, one of the reasons that I can go out and hang out with my friends and go out in nature and go turn off for three days is because I know that my financial house has gotten in order. I know that my bills are paid. I know that my emergency fund is set up. I know what my investments are doing. I know that my business is going to run. And that's what we want to talk about this week. You know, I have a really, really exciting guest today named Peter Lazarus. He's a CFA, CFP, and he's the co-chief investment officer of PlanCorp. They manage over $4 billion in client assets. Um, his new book is called Smart Money Quiz. Oh, sorry, we're going to talk about a smart money quiz. His new book, um, I should know this, I'm looking at it right now, is uh, Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way. He's known for taking complex financial strategies, sharing them in easy to understand language, which is exactly what I need when I meet with my financial guys. Um, he's all about improving not just wealth, but also financial habits. We want to get into why we do what we do with money. Um, and of course, he writes and has been seen all over the world in major media like the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, CNBC, and the New York Times. Without any further ado, Peter Lazarus, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Dude, Snowing so, here too, so I'm warm inside, but I'm not going to go backpacking, so I'm super jealous. <laughs> Where are you at? I'm in St. Louis. I spend a, We have offices uh, in a couple different places in the country, but I'm based out of St. Louis, which I love. Uh, I heard you have the Midwest living, and there's a lot of value in that easy commute, low cost of living, just an easy life, really, really convenient, really happy here. Yeah, one of my favorite things about the Midwest is, is, that I've grown to, to love is the people. I came from California. And there's great people there too, but it's kind of they're they're spread out throughout the seas of not as great necessarily. And the Midwest just has you know salt of the earth folks, and uh, we're glad to have that. Now you, I want to start right off because if you guys like, you got to do this. Go to Peter Lazaroff, L A Z A R O F F dot com. We're on social media, and you got the best face in the world. You should not be on a podcast. You should be on TV. Handsome little devil. How old are you, man? Holy cow. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said. I'm going to go home right after this podcast. My day has been made, but uh, I'm 35 years old. And so 
that picture, as you said, I said, what picture is he seeing? Yes, that I was 34 in that picture. So I'm still looking roughly like the picture on the website. So that's not your prom picture. No, no. My prom <laughs> picture is ridiculous. I took the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile to prom and wore like a zoot suit. And if you go on my Instagram page or Twitter page and really dig into the archives, you might actually find it because it came up in a conversation on social media. But you do. No, no. This is a recent legit. picture. All right. So, so follow Peter Lazaroff <laughs> on Instagram. See if you can find the Oscar Mayer picture. I love it. I'm just, uh, just, just, just messing with you, man. But um, you do, you do, you get, you got that face that uh, you'll be super, I'm sure you're early on. They were like, how old are you? But you're going to be super happy when you're 80 because you'll look 50. <laughs> 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 you, uh, you, so you've, you've been in this financial world for a little bit. I, I'm very curious, especially financial people of any background. You know, I got into real estate early. Um, you're in finance. When you're growing up, what is growing up like in your household? What was money like in your house? What, what was your, your father, mother? What, what was that situation like? And what was your parents' relationship with money? So my parents were both in the medical profession. My dad was a pediatrician and my mother was a nurse practitioner. And they were very good with their money. However, they never really intentionally taught me anything about money other to, than to make it clear when we were having family dinners that you don't spend what you don't have. And I think my passion for money or financial health, and in particular investing, really was born out of being given a share of Nike stock for my birthday on my, on my 12th birthday from my grandmother. And she gave me a share of a stock of a company that I was familiar with each birthday from 12 to 18. And Maybe I got a little lucky. She gave me a stock that did exceedingly well, and that's what got me interested. But I did take an interest in investing specifically from a very, very young age. My parents, you know, they never extended beyond their means. I think that I never watched them indulge in things um, materially that weren't necessary. So I, I definitely had a fortunate upbringing. I, my parents were well off to pay for my college. I you know, had a safe place to sleep every night and food for every meal. But ultimately, you know, we, we were rewarded for hard work and making our best effort. And I think my parents really encouraged my interest in investing because I was not a big reader. And when hard work is encouraged, they're like, why can't we get this kid to read? When I was suddenly asking to go to the bookstore to buy investing books for teenagers, or I asked them to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal so I could watch the stocks more closely, they were all on board and very supportive of that sort of passion that I had at a young age. Did you get an allowance growing up? Did you get job opportunities? Did they pay for what was needed but not indulge? What was the sort of their relationship with money associated with kids? And were you an only child or were there siblings? Tell me about, because I'm very curious. I have an eight-year-old son myself. He's almost nine. And we're always going, okay, well, like I, I want to turn him into a good human, right? <laughs> as best right. I can. And I want him to have a great relationship with money. And me and so many people I know have gone through these different phases. And, you know, I was a big spender and I didn't have much growing up. So then I overindulged and then I got myself in trouble and that, you know, and then I've come back around to sort of a, a more budget minded yet um, freedom and success. So I've gone through this journey. And of course, I want him to have the best one possible. How, because it sounds like your parents did a great job. How did they operate with you when it came to your money? So I did have an allowance. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I also worked jobs from age 12 through college. So at age jobs? 12, you're not really legally employable, but I uh, kept score at basketball games for like 
fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade basketball games, pushed the little buzzer, operated the scoreboard, and remember getting maybe 10 or 15 or $20 at those. And eventually I started refereeing basketball games when I was 15. And I did that all through high school. Great paying job, cash job. And then in the summers, I worked at a summer camp and a car wash. And when I was 18, I started waiting tables uh, on the weekdays and I would do car wash on the weekends. So I was definitely a worker. I, I liked having money. I liked to stack my money. I loved cash jobs where I could count it. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's a weird thing, but I work no, with so many clients who like to no, digitally count their money that I know that that's a thing. So um, that was, you know, they didn't tell me I had to do that. But I think because I'd gotten hooked on some of these concepts that I learned, like if you save money early, you will be very comfortable and have a, it's not about being rich or being wealthy. It's about having the freedom to do what you want when you want. And whether that means you want to work a job that takes less money or take a break from work or do a type of work that just makes you happy, or you just want to hang up, hang it all up and be retired and travel the world and spend time with your kids and grandkids. That's what building wealth is all about is just getting that freedom to take risks in business, to take risks in your personal life. And so I was never told I needed to go get a job, but I usually worked winners again, uh, some form of basketball assistance, whether it was keeping score, or eventually refereeing games. And then summer, I'd usually hold two jobs just to accumulate as much as I could. Now, when you ask about allowance, I, I actually really got excited about that. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old boy. Okay, here we go. He gave my six-year-old his allowance we started him when he was four years old. And I actually wrote an article about this. Uh, it's something like how and why I gave my four-year-old an allowance. So if you Google that, like no one else has ever written an article like that, so you'll probably find it. But you know, he, I had always talked to him about money. And at that age, you have to keep it really simple. And he was asking enough questions about money. I felt like it was time to give it to him so he could learn. Because the way you learn about money typically is you make mistakes. You can read books all you want. You can read about the right way to invest, but until you've made those mistakes, you don't necessarily believe or learn the way that you do from experience. And it's a lot better to watch a four-year-old blow money on a toy that is ridiculous and not going to be of interest in two days than when he's older and buying a car and buying a mortgage and uh, you know taking out a mortgage to buy a house. And so we, um, you know, I did a lot of research on giving kids allowance, and the going rate I found out in America is between fifty cents to a dollar for each year of life. So we opted to give him a dollar for each year of life. So when he was four, he got a $4 allowance. Oh, that's we a great to, little rule. Yeah. And we went to Target. And we got three jars, let him pick them out and decorate them. And one jar was for spending, one jar was for saving, and one jar was for sharing. And we forced him to put half of his money in to save and $1 in to spend. So like if he's in the grocery store and wants a candy bar, like impulse buy, sure. and $1 to share where he'd pick it out to go to a charity. And he had decided he wanted to support charities that gave toys to kids for Christmas because he was really sad when he heard that some kids don't get Christmas like we do. So that's, and then in his first, fifth birthday, he got a raise and he got to decide what to do with his quote raise. And it really has been a wonderful experience. I think that there's no right age to start an allowance. It's really when kids start talking about money, but it has allowed us to have real conversations that. I'm, I'm truly shocked that I was having with a four-year-old and then a five-year-old and now a six-year-old. The other great thing is that he never asked me for anything when we're at the store. He knows if he has money and he wants to buy it, go for it. But what? that actually has been the, the most pleasant thing. I, you hate saying no to your kids and it can be a little frustrating and annoying if we're just being completely candid. But now he has this sense where he'll ask me, hey dad, how much money do I have? 
before saying, dad, can I have this? So that's been a really pleasant thing too. That's interesting. I want to circle right back to that. But um, since you just said how he's starting to behave, it sounds reminiscent of a story you tell about being at a, at a pizza place with your dad. Can you tell us that story about the jukebox? Sure. Um, I, it's truly my first distinct memory of money. And I share it in the book where we're at a pizza place that we live nearby and there's a jukebox there. And I asked my dad for a quarter to go pick out a song. And he asked me, is it worth your money? And I said, no. And he goes, well, it's not worth mine then. And I was like, oh man. Um, so then the next time we went, I, there's the jukebox again. I still want it. I go, Hey dad, can I have a quarter? And he says, is it worth your money? And so I've, I've gone down this path before and I thought I was smart. And so I said, yes, it is worth my money. And he says, great, go spend your own money. <laughs> I go, oh no. So that's the first, uh, first <laughs> lesson of such money. Such a good I line, can, man. Such yeah, a good line. Uh, is it worth is your money? Clever. And, um, you know, that stuck in my head forever. And I was so pleased when I got to do it to my child for the first time. But truly, you know, money is a complicated topic and it isn't taught in classrooms. And the number one teacher of money is mom and dad. They watch your habits, even if you aren't actively teaching them. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, my parents really did not have proactive conversations. There's maybe one other money conversation I can ever remember having with my parents since when my dad started his own business. And I remember that conversation very clearly, very vividly and what that, you know, his emotions and his thoughts about money. And, you know, it's, it's those big things that you don't realize are impacting your kids. Even if you're not talking to them directly, you, they're still following you by example. How, how did, so can we just tangent on that for a second? So your dad goes, when he was, he was a pediatrician, um, is he now starting his own practice or or is he getting into a different kind of business? And then he broke away from the hospital group to start his own practice with a handful of other doctors. And today I think there's 30 some offices and and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but like 60 to 80 doctors. And, and that was unusual at the time, but he knew he wanted to work for himself. And I remember the conversation focusing around, hey, everybody, like I, mom and I have been talking and I'm going to make this decision. And, you know, here are, I don't remember the exact, you know, granted, I was young, so I'm, I'm probably working from memory and thinking what I hope he would have said. But I do remember him saying like, money could get tight if things don't work out, but don't worry we'll always have the house, you know, we're always, you, nothing's going to be wrong, but you know, there may be a year where we don't take a vacation if something goes bad or, but we just want you to know that, you know, this is important to us. You know, it's something along those lines. It was a really honest conversation. Now, remember he's a pediatrician. He talks to children all the time. So I'm sure that it was a very calculated conversation and you know, it, it held with me today as I've taken, I work for an established wealth management firm. You know, we serve clients in 44 countries. I personally oversee the four and a half billion dollars we manage. However, I've helped with startups and invested in startups and been employees of startups where, you know, I understand what that risk feels like a lot because he talked to me when I was very young and I always had that little bug for the growth, for the entrepreneurial spirit and somewhat of writing a book somewhat scratched that entrepreneurial spirit. But it, it is really an impactful moment in my life that he was honest and candid. And he didn't get in the weeds in a way that a child wouldn't understand. But I obviously still remember the conversation, even if I don't remember word for word what was said today. So you, you, have, you have a pediatrician turned entrepreneur. Is your mom still working at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I okay. don't think so. There's a little bit of stability until I was in college. Yeah. They, they were workers. You know, my mom grew up uh, in a farm town and, you know, I, 
they come from a long line of hard workers, very competitive people. Um, my sister and I, I don't think we're competitive with each other, but my wife tells me that we are. But, you know, my sister is a hard worker and I am too, but oh my goodness, I've never seen anybody work as hard as she does. And I think that's just, again, some of that's genetics and some of it's the example that was set for us. Certainly sounds like it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about money habits and financial habits. I think one of the most fascinating things to me, you know, I have a neuro-linguistic programming background. I've been teaching and training in like motivational strategies, not motivating like rah-rah, but like the motivation for why we do what we do. And I've been doing that for a decade and a half. The most interesting thing I see is these invisible patterns that shape like our decision-making and our motivations. Why do people decide to do what they do, whether it's positive or negative? Why do people spend money? Why do they save just enough? And once they get over $1,000 in their emergency fund, then there's always an emergency. Or, you know, why is it that we find ourselves in these financial patterns? Do you see financial patterns? And what are, what are some of the major sort of, I guess, patterns or habits that you run into on a regular basis that you, that you wish you didn't? The kinds that you're like, oh, like, I just want you to get this. What are a couple of those like danger zone kind of pitfall patterns that you notice um, when you first meet clients before they work with you? Well, the biggest thing that happens in all of us is humans. I mean, you can't take the human nature out of humans. And so I love that you focus in on the habits. And so much of my book focuses on the habits. And so much of what we coach clients to do on everyday basis is focused on habit. Because if you can't take human nature out of the human, then you need to build systems that either leverages those negative habits into being a good thing or builds around them so that you can't let yourself get in your way. And there have been um, studies where they do scans of the brain and show that the neural activity thinks of saving as exactly the same as giving money away to a complete stranger. And so saving and consumption, consumption is really consumption today and saving is consumption tomorrow. So how do we bridge that disconnect between saving for ourselves when we're really physiologically thinking of it as giving money away to a complete stranger. And so visualization techniques really work well with that, um, goal setting, automation. But that's the, that is the source of what a lot of the people who make poor choices that I meet right out the gate are making. And that's, that's very widespread. When it comes to investing, I would say that people think that they know something that everybody else doesn't, or they think that they know something that is impactful, that they can leverage into making more money. You know, and, and I think the more that you learn about markets, the more you learn about what the competition in markets is and how hard it is to beat the market. And even smart people whose job it is to beat the market do not beat the market. I think that when you, it's, if you are, proposed with two types of investment. One is going to actively pick and choose the stocks that are cheapest so that you can have higher returns. You say, yeah, I want that. That sounds good. Oh, and you've done it well in the past few years. Yes, here's my money. The problem is that was more likely due to luck than skill. And you are also performance chasing. So I've given two super high examples where I go really deep in the book is performance chasing is something everyone does. They want to own the asset or the investment that has done well recently. And they don't want to own the asset that has not done well recently. So that's a big mistake people make. Can we just real quick talk about that? So performance chasing, um, you're saying, hey, you know, Netflix blew up whatever year that was. And it's like, oh man, I should really get on that gravy train. I should have done that before. But we don't necessarily want to jump on the one that hasn't been performing. With that said, the reason that doesn't work is that 
it's completely backwards. You know, like if anything, if something was performing poorly, there's a chance that it might even make more money. But you're saying it sounds like it's not about chasing performance either way. And just because a stock performed a certain way in the past doesn't indicate how it's going to perform in the future. So I'm assuming you sound like a little more of a stability market sort of guy, like um, staying with an index, um, that sort of a thing. Yeah, I mean, index investing is one of the best options. I ultimately have some people who index. They say, I don't need to beat the market. I don't ever want to lose to it. So just give me the market return. There are other approaches without getting too into the weeds that don't try to predict the future, but systematically allocate money towards areas where there are higher expected returns. And it's not so subjective. I'm saying this company is expected to have higher returns because of this story about them that I can tell you or because I use their product and it's really cool. My it's Uber driver bad. also said that it's going to be a hot ticket too. Did you know yeah, that? Yeah, actually, I was in, yesterday I was in an Uber <laughs> and they wanted to pull over to sell their stocks because the market was going down. I was like, oh my goodness. So, and which is, by the way, the second thing I was going to highlight was that market timing. People make too many changes with their portfolio. When the market's going down, they want to get out. And there's a lot of evolutionary background to that. I mean, if we are cavemen and we hear a rustle in the bushes, if we stand there and calculate the probability that that rustle in the bushes is a lion versus the probability that it's wind, we're going to get eaten. So we have been hardwired to run when we see danger. It's a very natural reaction. However, it is one that is the complete opposite of successful investing. So the, this performance chasing, this desire to market time, to know when to get out and when to get in, it's really hard to do. And the more and more and more you learn, and I study it every day, you gain, you gain such a high level of respect for how difficult it is to do. Now, good investing, good financial planning, it is not rocket science. It is not brain surgery. But it does require some humility, a little bit of humbleness. And oftentimes, any sort of thing that you do in your life, if you hire a professional, the outcome's going to be better. Like when I used to mow my lawn, like I didn't kill my lawn, the grass got cut. But when I hired someone to mow my lawn, it looked much better and it was much healthier. And they were doing little things that I'd never considered doing. You know, and I think that good financial planning and good investing is closer to mowing your lawn than it is rocket science. And a lot of the reason I wrote the book, I view that a lot of my financial success isn't because I had some secret recipe. And it also isn't because I've earned gobs and gobs of money. You know, I think I turned the career success I had into financial success. And I wanted to lay out the blueprint for anyone else who is successful in business or is driven in business to take some really almost common sense type set steps to earn that financial success and ensure that it's there and not have to ask the question, am I doing the right thing with my money? And and hence, of course, having the professional. I, I love that um, mowing the lawn. What a what a phenomenal metaphor for that. It's like, can you do it yourself? Yes, but is it going to turn out the best it could? I mean, obviously not. And I mean, I I just put in uh, yesterday. I finished putting in a new sink and vanity in in our upstairs bathroom. Now I'm not a handyman. I'm not a plumber. I'm not a contractor. I don't really know anything. And I messed up a bunch of things, but I finally got it done. It might be a little crooked. Don't tell my wife. It's like, you know, she won't <laughs> notice like a quarter inch on one side. But like, if I had someone come in and redo that bathroom, I could expect just perfection. It, it, it could be just how it's supposed to be. Maybe perfection is the wrong word, but definitely something great. Um, so we're talking about money decisions. We're sitting here with Peter Lazaroff. If you're just joining us, 
uh, Peter Lazaroff. You can find him at Peter Lazaroff. That's L-A-Z-A-R-O-F-F, Lazaroff. On all social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, PeterLazaroff.com. We're talking about his new book, Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way. Um, one of the places to start when, when a few years back, when, when I first really made a, a major financial change in my own mindset and my money management, um, I took this instant assessment and you created something called the smart money quiz. And it's really all about understanding, are you making the right decisions with your money? Every day, each person, if you're listening to this right now, you are making decisions with your money. Whether you think you're making them or not, just because you're not making like big time financial decisions or investing decisions or whatever, every day you're making decisions. Just like uh, Peter said with his uh, 25 cents with the jukebox of the pizza place, you're making a choice with your decision, uh, with your money. And the smart money quiz is going to help, help you understand if you're making the right decisions or not. How do they find out about that? And it's free, I believe, for everybody. Uh, what do they get out of the smart money quiz? Yes. If you go to smartmoneyquiz.com, what I've done is create an assessment that has nine questions. And the questions actually can differ depending on how you start answering the questions. And the goal is at the end to point out some areas where potentially you could improve your finances and then provide you with resources for making those improvements. So I have created a lot of resources over the course of my life. Obviously, the book is kind of combining a lot of them. However, it still doesn't have everything. I have lots of worksheets, lots of articles tailored to specific points, pain points in your life that you may identify through the assessment. It takes less than two minutes to fill out. It is completely free. And the great thing about it is if you can't spell Peter Lazaroff, as most people cannot, smartmoneyquiz.com <laughs> is way easier to remember and spell. And then you'll ultimately figure out how to find me everywhere else because you'll see a way to get to my website from there as well. Man, I wish you told me that uh, that you yeah, know the beginning of the interview. <laughs> yeah, forget. All right, go to smartmoneyquiz.com. You can take the quiz. It's two minutes. Find out if you're making the right decisions with your money. Um, I've taken. I think I find it very, very interesting that I think I'm doing the right things, but there's always there's a couple questions in there that I, I cringed at and went, oh well, well not really. That was the one I was going to get to next year. Uh, not quite making the right choice, and that goes right along course with making money simple. So if you're like me, you want a simple way to manage money, a simple way to think about it. Um, I find that like if I get myself too deep in the weeds of money, then I quit actually creating money. Like I, you know, it's much harder as an entrepreneur to get out there and and create revenue and find new clients and work on my marketing and um, you know and fulfill for the products and services and programs and everything. If you're focused too much on it, it's tough. And hence, that's why. You know, when we were living in a bigger place with a big lawn, it's like we had a guy do the lawn and, you know, I had a pool. I always had a guy do the pool. I could do those things myself. But all of a sudden, one of the biggest problems, I think, Peter, is that, you know, if I'm doing my own lawn or doing my own pool and doing my own dishes and then doing my own everything pretty soon, that's my week. And all I did is I kind of survived through my job or survived through my career or my business. And if you want to thrive in your career, thrive in your business, you got to start turning things over to the professionals. Um, thoughts on the, is, is there fear maybe of turning something over? Can you speak to that a minute as we sort of wind down here together? Sure. Well, I think all these things, there's a sense of accomplishment when you do it yourself. That's I do so think good. That, yeah. And I think for people who are frugal, and note I say frugal, not cheap. Frugal to me means you are careful with your money and you're trying to make good decisions. 
the thing is you can become penny wise and pound foolish when it comes to something like having someone manage your money for you because you feel like you can do it yourself. However, the difference between making a mistake with your money and making a mistake with your lawn is you're not going to notice. And when compounded over multiple decades, a small mistake can actually be quite incredibly large. And I think the fear stems from trust. I don't think that Wall Street or the finance industry as a whole has done a great job about that. And I always tell people I'm in the investment profession, not the investment industry or the investment business. I'd like to think that when you come to a professional, much like you go to a CPA or a doctor or an attorney, you get advice that's in your best interest. I mean, that, that's a total given. However, when you go to get financial planning advice and investment advice, that's not always the case. So I very much understand the fear. I do talk a little bit about that in the book, the do-it-yourself versus hire an advisor and how there are different areas now. There are digital advisors, there are hybrid advisors, there's the traditional human-to-human advisor. Each option is different for everybody. But if you make that choice to hire somebody, it is a huge investment in yourself and it is a big act of trust. And I do think that there is a right way and a wrong way to go about it to make sure that if you're going to make such a big investment in it, I think there is such a thing as hiring, you know, hiring a professional is great unless they ruin the job. So like, as you mentioned with your vanity, you did it yourself, could have saved a lot of time. It would have cost money, but had you hired a bad, uh, you know, a bad person to do it and they true, put true. the wrong thing in, that would have been bad too. So I think I'm biased where I think that hiring a professional makes sense, but it's also really important to hire the one that's right for you. Yeah. And, and so like do the research, don't jump in foolhardy and go, ah, oh, just take whoever's out there. There's a lot of people. One of the big distinctions, I don't know if you can speak to this or not legally, or maybe it's, it's nothing. Um, but you know, between like brokers and uh, fiduciaries, can you speak to that a moment? And uh, the difference in the importance of someone who's looking after you as a client versus looking after a commission? I'm really glad you asked that. Me too. So being a fiduciary means putting the client's interests first at all times. Brokers, um, they are held to the suitability standard, which means that when they recommend a product or a solution, it just has to be suitable. It doesn't have to be what's best for you. And the way that I think about it is if you were to go to a Ford dealership and start describing the type of truck you need, and you're really describing a Toyota Tundra someone who is held to the suitability standard would be able to sell you a Ford F-150. Whereas, you know, someone who's in the fiduciary standard would be, be forced to say, hey, it sounds like you're actually describing a Toyota Tundra. There's a Toyota dealer down the road. We have these F-150s that meet a lot of your needs, but it's not really what's in your best interest. That's sort of the differentiation. What's really confusing is that a lot of people, since some laws came out or some proposals for laws that were going to require people to act in a fiduciary capacity, now you have people walking around throwing the word around loosely saying like, well, of course I act in your best interest. What you need to do is when you're working with someone, if they will not put it in writing and sign a piece of paper saying, I will be a fiduciary at all times, well then look, you, can't, you have nothing to stand on if they ever do something harmful against you. And if they're not willing to sign it, that's a bad sign. Um, and so part of the reason that I joined Plan Corp five years ago was that I was really impressed with their commitment to the fiduciary standard. It was really important to me that they took that seriously. And in any of our client agreements, it's in writing. So that if we ever weren't upholding it, then you'd be able to sue us. Now we've never been sued in 36 years, but if that's not in writing, 
you have nothing to stand on and you open the door for a lot of conflicts of interest. And that, thank you for mentioning that because that, that really, really helps for like it's part of that trust. You know, I, I, when I used to be in the mortgage business and the real estate business back in, in the day and the metaphor I'd use is like going to the dentist, you know, people would say, okay, you went to the dentist, you had a bad experience. Well, you know, in 2001, 2005, anyone could get a dentist license, so to speak, you know, metaphorically, right? And anyone could be a broker, anyone could go off and, and make these financial arrangements for you. So what turned out is there was a lot of bad dentists or a lot of bad brokers. And there were some good ones, a bunch of them mixed in there. And the good ones have stayed most likely uh, through time. And the same thing with uh, investment advisors, you know, there were people that it was a lot easier to get in before there was as many laws. Um, so you know, you might have had that bad experience, but just because your tooth hurt after going to someone who didn't really know what they were doing, that doesn't mean that you should avoid dentistry. It doesn't mean that you should avoid professionals that know what they're doing that actually care about you. So um, on that note, I want to say, man, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for spending some time with us, Peter. Remember guys, it's Smart Money Quiz. Find out what kind of decisions you're making and grab Peter's book. It's on Amazon. We'll throw a link on. Um, if you're listening to this live, and you're on the radio, you know, you can stop your car, head over to mattbrawningpodcast.com. You can get all of these episodes, today's and any previous ones, no paywall. The archive is available for you for free. They're all on demand. You can get them on the device you're choosing on iTunes, Roku, Spotify, Alexa. You can say Driven Entrepreneur, Alexa, whatever you want to do, you can get these on demand and you'll find all the links for Peter right there. Oh, see, I just said Alexa. Now Alexa's talking in the background. Alexa, shut up. Okay. <laughs> Peter, final question. I'll let you get out of here, man. Um, of, of all the things that you've done and how you've managed your finance and how you've managed kind of your, really your life, do you have any regrets? Would you change anything or would you leave it all the same? It, it would be hard to go back and change something because I love my job. I have a wonderful family. I feel like if I changed some minor detail, I'd be afraid that none of this would have happened. However, I suppose if I knew I'd still get to keep my great life, I, I wish I'd just studied harder in school. I, I was not that interested in school. I was super interested in one topic. It's the topic where I'm very, very commonly using on a regular basis today, um, which is economics and finance and investing. But as I've gotten older, I'm reading more about biology and history um, and even just, I mean, I, I read a lot about baseball and I, I just wish I'd done more in school to take advantage of the education I was getting. You know, I, I, I have the same thing. I wish I stayed in Boy Scouts to be an Eagle. And I wish that I studied a little more and enjoyed it then because certainly I love learning now. I, I couldn't agree with you more, my friend. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on, man. Matt, thanks for having me. All right, guys, that's Peter Lazaroff again. Um, get out there this weekend and don't just go crush it and have a great weekend at building your business, but make sure you have something that's built to last. Make sure that if you're doing this, you're growing your business, you're, you're looking after new revenue, you're meeting new clients. What happens to every dollar? This is a massive financial change in my mind and my life just recently in my business when I knew I could always get out and make more. But then I realized, wait a second, where does every single dollar go? And if I can save a dollar here, if I can turn that extra dollar into two, I don't have to work as hard. That's what the difference is. That's what it's about. Make some smart money decisions. And start by grabbing his book, Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way. It's on Amazon. We got a link in the show notes. And take a smart money quiz. It takes you two minutes. Find out if you're making the right money decisions. And of course, follow Peter Lazaroff on all social media. And follow me, Matt Browning, on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, all that stuff. I'm there. 
podcast episodes are there. Pictures of my family are there. I talk about my son Val all the time. You want to see what he looks like? He's kind of silly. My latest Instagram shows him getting a bullseye in his archery that he just, we went as a family. Pretty fun stuff to see him uh, posing next to an arrow. Anyway, love you guys. Get out there and crush it this weekend. Get your financial house in order. And I'll see you next Friday with another Driven Entrepreneur. 